0: Welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where we make all our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. In this discussion, we dive into Brene Brown's Braving the Wilderness, the quest for true belonging and the courage to stand alone. Brene tells us that true belonging doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. And in her book, we discuss cultivating true belonging in our communities, organizations and culture and also the effect the high-demand, high-control aspects of the LDS Church have had on our ability to find community and self-acceptance. This was a really interesting discussion with many personal experiences and stories shared. We know you'll find it as wonderful as we did. This book club discussion was originally held on Sunday, June eleventh, 2023. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Good Book Club. I'm Rebecca Biblioteca, and this is our June meeting. It's June 11th, Sunday at 11 a.m., and we have an amazing discussion planned today. We were so excited about the book we're going to be talking about. Uh, Before we get to that, we have a little bit of housekeeping that we go through. The first thing that we always do is we read our The Good Book Club Mission Statement. I forgot to call on anybody to read that today, so I'm just going to read it myself. But this kind of reminds us of who we are and why we're gathering together today. Um, The Good Book Club Mission Statement. The Good Book Club was created to bring together nuanced Mormons, post-Mormons, and others with a shared interest in Mormonism. We are introspective, critical thinkers seeking to learn, connect, and build relationships through the catalyst of literature. We welcome all who are searching for a safe space to share authentic thoughts, feelings, and ideas through open dialogue and shared experiences um, relative to Mormon culture. As we deconstruct previous beliefs, we encourage all to find happiness in the process of discovering new religious ideologies, spirituality, and life philosophies. So that's our mission statement. Um, Somebody, I think Rochelle asked me, how come we don't memorize it? I'm like, well, that would get into a whole other thing. We're not going to do that. (laughs) However, it's wonderful to read and remember. Um, Just to go through a few things, the Good Book Club went to the Pride Parade. Several of us were there in Salt Lake, and we had a wonderful time, uh, made some new friends, book club friends. There's our new friend James right there, book club member Joe came, and we had a really amazing, wonderful time at Pride. It was great was fabulous. Um, also, Bruce was in the house. Bruce, one of the co-founders of the Good Book Club, lives in California, and he visited Utah. We had a wonderful time. We went to the Joseph Smith Sphinx. You can see that picture there on the left. If you're not familiar with that, Google it. It's very interesting. We went out to dinner. We went up on top of the conference center. That is the picture there. And we spent some time on Temple Square, which was really interesting. And we talked to a lot of missionaries there and learned some very interesting things. Maybe we'll talk about it later. So that was fun, Bruce. We really appreciate you coming to visit. We had a wonderful time with you. It was wonderful. All right, let's talk about a few things on the radar coming up quickly. Um, We have some bonus reading. I also helped John DeLynn run his Mormon Stories Book Club, and we are reading the wonderful book, Unexpected, oh, sorry, wrong book, It's over there somewhere. Unexpected. (laughs) And we're going to be having that meeting in about a month. So we'll put out more information about that. But if you'd like to have some bonus reading and participate in the Mormon Stories Book Club, grab a copy of Unexpected. All right. Other reading opportunities with the Mormon Stories Book Club are we are... Trying to read Dan Vogel's Charisma Under Pressure. This is a really long book, an amazing book. So just kind of on the back burner, working on that throughout the summer. Also, Vengeance is Mine. That is the book about um, the aftermath of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Uh, We'll be reading that kind of on the back burner and probably interviewing uh, both of these authors in the fall. So just kind of keep that on the back burner. All right. Speaking of books, we just voted on our categories. We had quite a few to choose from. And for those of you that aren't familiar with our process, we go August to August. We vote on the categories and then we suggest books for the categories. So, and it's all very scientific. We have an accounting professor who puts it together. It's a Qualtrics survey. So we got our results and these are our categories for our 2023-2024 season. So, Interestingly to me, there is something missing here, and that is Anything to do with Mormonism. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? It's almost like we've graduated and moved on. When we started three years ago, a lot of our books were, you know, Mormon history, Mormon culture, uh, Mormon doctrine, things like that. We don't see that here at all. Um, We have psychology, humanity and social sciences, human interest, consciousness and thought, ethics and morality, psychological evolution, um, biology evolution, mindfulness and spirituality, world religion, human sexuality, anthropology and sociology. So these are our categories that we're going to fit our books into this year as you're thinking about what you might like to suggest. And so our next slide will talk about how we can suggest books. And then we have another round of voting and then we narrow it down to those 12 for next year. So you can add a recommendation to the post under the Featured tab on Facebook. Just find it, make a comment, say, I want this book, and we'll collect them there. You can email me your recommendations at thegoodbookclub@mail.com, and I'll add them to the queue. You can simply message me or Landon uh, directly if you're connected to us on Facebook Messenger and tell us what book you'd like to see or put up for voting. You can comment on our Instagram page for The Good Book Club, and you can just make a comment um, or message us there and tell us what you would like um, to see us read. You can tell anybody in the post-Mormon community, and eventually the rumor will reach me. (laughs) That actually might not be a joke. That might be true. Um, You can etch it into metal plates. Uh, You can walk a thousand miles. You can bury it in a hill. I will dig it up, and I will translate your recommendation with a rock. That's another great way. And you can also, an angel with a flaming sword can visit me and command me to choose your recommendation. If you can swing that, I'm on board. So, anyway, those are some serious and not so serious ways that you can recommend the books that you've been reading because. Unlike other organizations we used to belong to, this is a ground-up, crowdsourced organization, and we want to read what all of you would like to read. Um, something else that's really exciting that's on the radar here, um, our book club loves to discuss the Mountain Meadows Massacre, one of the greatest books we ever read, The Blood of the Prophets uh, by Will Bagley. So there is a, a wonderful play that was written by a U- University of Utah professor, not a Mormon, Um, She wrote a play called The Mountain Meadows, and several of us had the chance to see it when it was put on in Salt Lake, and we thought, this is amazing. This is the greatest treatment of this we've ever seen. It details the story of Juanita Brooks struggling to write her um, archetypal book about this topic and then kind of juxtaposes it with um, characters from The Mountain Meadows and just the the whole event itself. So we thought, oh, dang, not too many people got to see this. Well, we found out from the playwright, Deborah 3D that they are actually doing a reader's theater of with the original actors from the play. And this is going to be in a tiny town called Torrey, Utah. Several of us are actually going to make the trek out there to attend. It's part of the Entrada Institute. Um, but the good news for all the rest of you is that this is going to be live streamed from the Entrada Institute on Facebook on July 15th. I think that's a Saturday at 7 p.m. So I will get more information out to you. But just kind of keep in the back of your mind july 15th it's going to be live streamed you can access it through facebook and it's going to be absolutely amazing this is an incredible play and i'd love for as many of you as possible to be able to take take part in this and if you'd like to come to tori with us let us know we'll we'll have a big book club party there and and we'll attend together so that is happening All right. The book that's coming up next um, is called The Woman They Could Not Silence, The Shocking Story of a Woman Who Dared to Fight Back by Kate Moore. Now we'll hear more about this at the end. We'll give a little preview of it. This is going to be on Sunday, July 9th at 11am, but this is our next official book club book. And I think that finally gets us through all of our slides. Like I said, these are getting longer and longer. These take up like half an hour. We have so much going on, but I hope you guys find it fun and interesting. So now we are very excited to start our discussion of our book for June. This is Brene Brown's Braving the Wilderness, the Quest for True Belonging and the Courage to Stand Alone, and our wonderful discussion leader and presenter today, Rochelle. Thank you, guys.
1: All right, so let me go
0: ahead and share my screen.
1: Okay, so Braiding the Wilderness by Brene Brown. Um, We're gonna try and keep this uh, lighthearted and interactive. We have some poll questions today. We also have some discussion questions. Um, So we'll just dive right into it. If I can find my mouse, there we go. Oh, all right, so, First off, just a quick summary of the book. So just to remind you of the arc of the book, um, Brene starts off by telling us that, um, telling stories that help us understand that sometimes we feel like we don't belong. And uh, this is sometimes described as loneliness. And she shares the story about her as a child and some of the experiences that she had, um, feeling like she didn't belong in school and um, sometimes with her family. And then she goes into the idea that we should prioritize belonging to ourselves over belonging to other people or groups, and talks about how this can bring us a lot of satisfaction, uh, but also just some self-confidence and just kind of center yourself in who you are rather than looking outside yourself for that belonging in other places. Um, And then she brings us to this idea that, but if we focus on belonging to ourselves, how do we also belong to a community? Because if we're so focused on who we are and what we want, that makes it kind of challenging to be part of a community. And so then she goes into how do we belong to a community? Um, So in the end, in summary, she basically says, stay true to who you are. Find a community that accepts you for who you are. Work hard to develop this community and your connection to it. This is belonging. So that's just a quick summary of the story arc. And we're going to go straight into a poll for those of you that read the book, what is the wilderness? So throughout the book, she's always referencing the wilderness, um, braving the wilderness, you go out into the wilderness. So I'm going to ask you from your reading of the book, what is the wilderness? So Bruce, will have you pull up the poll. We have one, is it life in general? Two, is it places where you don't belong? Three, is it hard patches in life? Four, the world outside your house? five, everything outside yourself, six, none of the above, or seven, I'll shoot, I don't know. I'm just curious to see what, what you, how do you define the wilderness based on your reading of this book? All right, and then Bruce, do you display the responses once we get them?
2: Yeah, we've had uh, 18 of 29 so far. So let's uh, do another maybe 10 seconds and respond and then we will display the results. Okay,
1: and then I'm not just so you know, Bruce, I'm not going to be responding to the polls. So you'll always be at least one short.
2: Well, yeah, and as the a host, I can't respond to them.
1: Oh, there we go, okay.
2: Okay, so two or three seconds, let's end the poll and share the results
1: all right so we have a pretty good variety here we've got um some people who are you know frankly don't know totally get that um that's i kind of felt that way um let's see it looks like our top well we have a tie places where you don't belong and everything outside yourself isn't that really interesting right because um There might be a correlation between everything outside yourself feeling like places where you don't belong. Um, It feels like there's some of that 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 she brings out in the book, and she's trying to help us figure out how do we feel like we belong everywhere. Okay, so um, for our discussion question, um, well, no, sorry, what is the wilderness? So according to Brene Brown, in her book, she says the wilderness is an untamed, unpredictable place of solitude and searching, a state of emotional and spiritual isolation or disconnection. Uh, So it's a place where it's unpredictable, untamed, you feel disconnected, you feel isolated. So basically the wilderness is any place where you feel like you don't belong. That could be a huge list of things. Um, it could be inside yourself. It could be outside yourself. Um, it makes it this really big thing that could be anywhere. So, what does it mean to belong to yourself? According to Brene, she says allowing yourself to be seen and heard for who you are, prioritizing your needs and values, and making your choices that align with your personal well being and growth. Treating yourself with kindness, embracing imperfection, or normalizing making mistakes. Creating a personal definition of what it means to lead a fulfilling life. To me, this is really poignant um, because it's been one of the processes that I've been working through after leaving Mormonism is really trying to figure out who I am, right? And having the courage to prioritize my needs and values. Um, that that piece I found to be a little bit challenging for me. Okay, so our next poll question. Now these next three are gonna be nuanced. So pay attention here. The first one says, Brene Brown provides a quote by a student, quote, if I get to be me, I belong. If I have to be like you, I fit in. So based on this understanding of belonging, When you were a full believing Mormon, how would you rate your feeling of belonging within the Mormon community? So when you were a Mormon, how much did you feel like you belonged to the Mormon community? So one, I felt a strong sense of fitting in. So keep in mind that definition of fitting in, you had to be like them. Felt a moderate sense of fitting in. Felt neither a sense of fitting in or belonging. Felt a moderate sense of belonging, so meaning you got to be you, and five felt a strong sense of belonging. All right, so Bruce, if we can pull up that poll. So remember, this is how you felt, how you rate your feeling of belonging within the Mormon community when you were Mormon. And I'm asking this question because I'm curious to see where we all where we all kind of fit back then when we were part of that. And I realize for some of you who are never Mormons, um, who are maybe still are Mormon, um, that might be a little bit difficult to answer. Um, Jackie, question? Oh, maybe she- Hi,
3: sorry, I was unmuted and couldn't get it. This is a hard question for me to answer because while I was Mormon, I felt like I belonged, but now that I've gone through the transition and read this book and uh, I'm like, oh no, I was fitting in totally. So uh, pre all in TBM would have said belonging. And I, I changed and, and I put number two.
1: Isn't that really interesting. I found myself saying the same thing. Like I thought I belonged, but yet when I look back, like There were so many times where I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere, but if you asked me, I would have said, oh, I belong here. Yeah, okay, so it looks like our poll results, um, number two is top, you felt a moderate sense of fitting in um, with the second being felt a strong sense of fitting in. I, I think that tracks because we spent so much time trying to be what they told us we needed to be. Okay, now this next poll question, Um, so again, the same question, so that quote, if I get to be me, I belong, if I have to be like you, I fit in, but on this one, I was really curious to hear based on this understanding of belonging, when you were a full believing Mormon, how would you rate your feeling of belonging to yourself? So not to the community anymore, but how would you rate your feeling of belonging to yourself when you were a full believing Mormon? And Jackie, this is probably going to play into your answer before too. It's, it's difficult because I didn't have a full, full picture back then. And then I wonder too, do I have a full picture now? Because I'm, I hope I'm a little bit smarter now, but you know, who knows what I'll learn in another 10 years. All right, Daniel, you have your hand raised.
4: I'm not sure I understand the question.
1: (laughs) Okay. So when you were a full believing Mormon, how would you rate your feeling of belonging to yourself? So if you get to be you, if you got to be you when you were a Mormon, that's belonging. If you had to be like everyone else, that's fitting in. So when you were a full believing Mormon, how much did you belong to yourself? How much did you get to be you? Was it a strong sense of belonging? Did you feel like you really got to be you? That would be a number five. Or did you really feel like you had to be like them? That would be fitting in. Mm. I think for you, and this is because I know you, you have such a strong sense of self that it, it's almost antithetical to who you are to think about having to be someone else.
4: Yeah, like, yeah, the question, is, yeah, I, it doesn't make sense to me.
1: Yeah, because I think even as a Mormon, you were so fully yourself in so many ways. Um, it, it's just who you are. Okay, so let's go over the poll results. Uh, our top one is um, just kind of middle of the road, neither a sense of fitting in or belonging, um, but most people going in on the fitting inside um let's see Brady you have your hand raised
5: yeah I just want to say uh I felt like that was actually a pretty poignant question just because um there's a little bit of a a difference there between feeling like you belong or fit into a church versus like if you're being true to yourself and it's not even really something I thought like a whole lot about at least that clearly until like right now so that I, I thought that was like yeah pretty poignant
1: So tell me a little bit about the difference for yourself. What did, what did you see that was different? What did it pull out for you?
5: Well, I think, you know, all along there's like, uh, I think the different issues that you can have with the church probably stem a little bit from like your personality or like, you know, certain things that do bother you or that you do value maybe more than other things. And, you know, if you're living in that, that area of friction of, uh trying to put that down to be able to stay in the tribe or in the community like you kind of you by definition kind of lose i think a little bit of, of your sense of self i i super respect people that can keep that um through the whole process but for me i'm realizing like whoa you really do have to like shrink yourself to fit into that
1: yeah i think for me i found that the church They almost require it to be part of it. Um, And and you'll see that in their talk about new converts. You know, uh, you, you get a new convert and then over time, they're like, oh, they're finally starting to look like us. They're starting to, you know, be this thing that we keep pressuring them to be. And so you imagine somebody who's in that for a lifetime and the pressure that there is to just keep being and being more, more like what they tell you to be
5: totally um,
1: let's see Bruce you had a question yeah
2: I definitely was just fitting in and I never felt I even had the right to have a sense of myself uh, I was always broken I was always in the wrong um I mean you should have seen family home evening because I was the only child at home. I was an accident years after my siblings. And it was just my parents telling me what was wrong with me and stuff. Yeah, I had no, I, I only fit in. I had no sense. And I still work with my therapist on having a sense of belonging to myself. So
1: that's, that's really interesting. I hope later on in our discussion, you'll be willing to, um, give your feedback on what you found to be most successful in helping you to belong to yourself? Like what are those things that you've done that that have helped the most? Um, Let's see, Melissa.
6: So for me, I think it's kind of like um, what was mentioned in the chat where I thought, you know, this is just what we do. So I never really thought, you know, that it was an option to be anything else. So, of course, I made myself fit in. And then once I left, I now have three tattoos and like double digit piercings. I never thought that was an option. So, of course, I fit the box. But the more I was questioning things and the more I was struggling with my testimony, the more I felt less like I was fitting and not necessarily even in um, a visual sense Like obviously now I wouldn't fit in visually, but even in an emotional and a spiritual place, the way I was raising my kids, the way I was looking at things, the more I was questioning and the more I was struggling with my testimony, the more, the less I felt like I was fitting in. So it was a very kind of a progressive
1: thing for me. It's really interesting to me when I look back at the Mormon culture And the way I looked at it, my philosophy around it was we have this God who loves us and he knows us better than we know ourselves. So why wouldn't I do everything he tells me to do? Why wouldn't I do that? He knows me better than I know myself. And so I just oppressed myself to all of it because I assumed he knew the way. And it never dawned on me that the person I was calling God or the words that I was hearing as God's words were actually just people's words. I never thought about that. And so I, yeah, I, I had very little sense of self and I had low self-esteem, even though people from the outside might not have been able to see that, but because I was always looking outside myself to validate what I was doing, that it was okay. And, and you can't, that's no way to live. And you can't ever please everyone. Um, Jackie, do you still have your hand raised or is that from before?
3: No, I've got it raised quickly. I I think another thing that complicates this whole situation with being Mormon is if you were like picked to be like for a woman in the young women's presidency or the Relief Society, you fit in and felt like you belonged a lot more Mm. You know, you were you were you kind of were in the know. You automatically had friends. You know, you had a presidency, but if you went long stretches where you know you were the greeter, or, you know, you didn't have one of those cool callings or whatever, you you were on the outside looking in. So I think there's even levels of belonging and fitting in when you went to church.
1: I agree, and I remember one of the things I used to complain about the most because it made no sense to me. They would tell you. Your calling doesn't matter. Every calling's important. And then what would they do every time they got up to introduce a general authority? They would tell them all the callings that they had, how many children they had, the great positions that they'd held. And I was like, if these don't matter, why do you keep throwing them in our faces? I don't understand. It you're you're absolutely right. Um, Rebecca
0: This reminds me of um, a discussion that we all had with the amazing Stephen Hassan talking about your authentic self. It's very hard to belong to yourself when you don't even understand who your authentic self is. And you sacrifice that, in my case, completely to try to fit into something that is nothing to do with you or what you really want. And somebody asked a question at this seminar where were at, where they said, well, how do you even, how do you even find yourself when you don't even know what your authentic self is? And he said, it's there. It really is there. It's just that you've tried so hard to fit into this organization, this high demand, high control, that it's, it's Very much buried. And I realize that about myself when I hear people say, Now you are completely different. What happened? You are, I don't even know you anymore. Who are you? (laughs) And I'm like, Well, I am exploring my authentic self, and it's very different, possibly from who you knew me as growing up completely in the church and trying to fit in. I mean, and that's also very much my personality to completely suppress you know, anything about me that might not be accepted by the group. So I'm in awe and I admire people, you know, like Melissa, who goes out and goes, I'm done, I'm getting all these tattoos. I'm, de-. You know, what? she's very authentic. And, and a lot of you are, I was not, it was also maybe the era I was raised in, but I believe uh, it's very, it's almost impossible to belong to yourself if you're not even acquainted with your authentic self. And that's something that happens on the other side, as you start to realize there's more to me. than than what that was in that organization. So it's a process for sure. And it can be kind of scary to get to know who you really are on the other side.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And I feel that push and pull a little bit because when I talk to my parents, I want to say, I'm still the same person. It's still me in here. Um, But on the other hand, I'm changing too. So it's still me, but yet there's so much of me you didn't know before because it wasn't okay for you to know that part of me before. It's, it's a hard push and pull. Um, we'll go with Brandy, and then um, we'll go to our next poll question. Brandy.
7: Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say when I was very young, I totally felt like I belonged. I was from a very tiny town in Wyoming. We, everybody I knew was members, all my friends were members. Um, I was always in young women's presidency, et cetera, just because there weren't that big of numbers. But I remember um, the exact moment when I started to realize that I think I was fitting in more than belonging, and that was at a girls camp one summer when at the end of girls camp everyone would get up and half ass and testimony meeting. I'm sure some of you remember that. And all these girls that I thought I was like were getting up and bearing their testimonies and proclaiming all these things that they knew to be true. And I sat there thinking, how are you saying that like it just boggled my mind that every single person out of everyone there not one of them even seemed like they might question anything or it was just it was just all fact and suddenly i realized i am not the same as everyone here because i couldn't make myself get up and do that so that's all i wanted to say
1: and for me i'm really proud of you for being brave enough to recognize that and to sit in that and be okay with that. Because for me in situations like that, I would always say, oh, I have to fix this about myself because if I can't get up there and do that, that's a problem with me. And so then I would just work on myself more, press myself more and tell I could be the person doing those things too. It's really problematic. Okay, next poll question. So this one is, uh, again, similar to the others, a little bit nuanced, so watch it. Um, If I get to be me, I belong. If I have to be like you, I fit in. But based on this understanding of belonging, how would you rate your current feeling of belonging to yourself? So your current feeling. So now for those of you that have left the church or um, are a little more nuanced or progressive in your beliefs, um, how do you rate that feeling of belonging to yourself now? So do you feel like you fit in with yourself? Um, Are you still middle of the road figuring it out? Do you feel a moderate sense of belonging? Um, Bruce, if we can pull up the poll.
2: Yeah, let's see. Just a second. It's telling me that I already launched this poll, which I didn't. So let's see. This is, oh, stop sharing. So we're going to number four.
1: There we go. So with this one, I'm just curious to see how it's changed how we've changed. Um, So our progress over time as um, leaving Mormonism and, you know, going on that journey. uh, What what is it like now for us.
2: We'll go another 10 seconds on the poll vote if you're planning on it.
1: And if you remember with um, the last poll question, which was uh, your sense of belonging to yourself back when you were in Mormonism, we were more one, two, and three. That's kind of where we hovered. Um, So with this one, look at that. Such a huge difference. Our 46 percent feel a strong sense of belonging to themselves. That is such a significant change. And it's it's not shocking to me, but on the other hand, as a believing Mormon, I would have never guessed that. I, I had no concept of that. Uh, Bruce, go ahead.
2: Yeah, let's see. Um, let me see. Yeah, yeah. As I mentioned before, when I was a member, I didn't feel like I had even a self that I could own because I was a child of God. I was the bishop's son for 12 years while I was growing up, you know, and now it's taken me decades, but I feel I have much more sense of myself. I mean, as a gay guy, you know, I'm going like, oh, I can have relationships and sex and stuff that I want and feel good about that is disapproved, but you know, that's, that's what I want to do. I'm 66. I have maybe a quarter of my life left and I'm still working on feeling like I belong to myself and deciding how I want to live my life. So yeah, that's kind of where, where I'm at.
1: Yeah. I, I feel that too. It's all, sometimes I'm embarrassed that I'm 40, 40. 5, 46, I don't know, 40-ish, mid 40s. <laughs> and like, I'm still trying to figure this out. And that seems so ridiculous to me that I grew up in this culture where I, it, there was none of that. Like, I just, I feel like I missed such an important, crucial part of being human and being a healthy human. And and now I'm just trying to play catch up. Landon.
8: Yeah, I, I just wanted to say, uh, I think that you know, as post-Mormon, I feel like I really belong in the in that community. And I've found a lot of community and a lot of people, uh, you know, especially through the book club and some of the other activities uh, that I've done. And I feel very comfortable with that. And I think it, it's, a, it's a work in progress. I'm always trying to figure out now who I am or how I belong more to myself. But I also, unfortunately, you know, I found that you know, I didn't really belong to my family. I feel like I fit into my family, uh, just like I did the church, because, you know, I basically uh, n- not, I, I, I kind of feel like an outsider in my own family now. Uh, we just had a wedding, and everyone was invited to the luncheon and stuff, but since I can't go to the temple, I wasn't invited to the luncheon. I just got invited to the, um, to the, to the reception after, so... I have found that uh, sometimes belonging to myself means being by myself uh, as, as I try to figure this out.
1: That hits really close to home for me as well. Um, And I'm still trying to figure that out with my family. Um, Will they allow me, give me space to belong to them? Or is it going to be, is, is fitting in required? And since I'm no longer willing to do that, you know, what, where does our relationship go from there? Such hard things. Um, Karn, go ahead.
9: Um, I just wanted to say that I I have never been Mormon, but I have, I do understand that sense of having to fit in and and when Landon mentioned the family situation, I definitely have felt that. What I put my hand up to say was that uh, after reading this book, I realized that my wilderness is my uh, acclimating myself to vision loss. And I've gone through a, a lot of depression, and I've gotten a lot of help to, to adjust. But um, this book was so helpful to me in realizing that this is a lonely business, learning yourself and uh, figuring out who you are now that you can't see anymore. I can still see, but I'm losing it. And um Yeah, It's just a powerful book, and it's just helped me tremendously.
1: Thank you. I appreciate your perspective so much. And going back to your first comment, um, I'm curious, as a Never Mormon, did you feel like you were raised with the idea that you could belong to yourself? Or was that, I mean, and probably not used with that kind of language, because I get that that's kind of new language, but... Were you kind of just raised with that idea that this is what life, I don't know, what it was supposed to be, that you're supposed to be true to who you are, I guess?
9: Yeah. Well, I mean, I was raised in a, in a religious household, but not one like Mormon, not, not real strict and and confining. But certainly, you know, it's like almost every religion has a certain certain boundaries you need to fit into. But no, my parents were both artists and they also encouraged me to be an artist and to be myself. So I had kind of a, a mix.
1: Okay. I think, I mean, as with everything, that's probably where most people end up is in this yeah. myth. Um, so yeah, it's not black and white, it's gray. Have to keep your mind. Yeah, yeah. shades <laughs> of gray. Exactly. <laughs> um, Brandon, go ahead.
8: Yeah, um, what I wanted to add is during my formative years, I had a pretty, you know, active life outside of the church. The church was just a, just a portion of my life. So what I found was I could not only be myself and b- belong to myself and these other activities and other facets of life, people actually treated me a lot better. And so... Um, you know, it was very easy for me to say, well, if I don't belong in the church, it's okay, because the outside world is obviously treating me a lot better. And I feel much more authentic. And so I've always had this strong sense of self and belonging.
1: I I value that so much. I feel like um, my husband is more along those lines. Whereas for myself, I was such a people pleaser. And I so wanted to please my parents. And Um, you know, they, they really pushed the religion hard. And so for me, I isolated myself from the whole outside community and I committed what we call social suicide so many times over so many dumb little things that just created barriers. So um, I would say when, if anyone asked me, I hated high school because I had no friends at my high school. It was miserable. It was hard. um, And I just Surrounded myself with church friends who didn't go to my high school. So it was a very lonely. um, I had a very lonely youth very lonely growing up in the church, too, because I didn't really belong to those friends at church. Mm. It's hard. Either way, it's hard.
5: Yeah.
1: So our next discussion question, um, and Bruce, this goes back to what I was mentioning with you, what actions or steps have you taken that have made the biggest impact on your ability to belong to yourself? So I'm curious, we've we've all kind of made that journey a little bit where we're making progress to belonging more to ourselves. What have you done that's made the biggest impact? What advice would you have for those of us still on that journey?
2: Well, the biggest step, and it wasn't a good Complete healthy step. But right when I got back from my mission while I was attending BYU, I stopped going to church. And this was in the early 80s. And BYU didn't require you to go to church or didn't keep track of you. So I was pretty much inactive from that point on. And I just knew that I had to stay away from the church because it would be bad for my mental health. But I didn't even have that terminology. So then. I stayed away for like 30 years i still believe the basic tenets of you know a pre-life this is a test an afterlife my family was very unhappy with me but i i just made the conscious decision to have my own life and it was very much in the closet i was in the closet at work i was in the closet with my family but i did have a uh, another life that was separate from those two and then I found the podcasting, Mormon Stories, uh, Jeremy Runnels and and stuff and realized that the narrative that I was taught wasn't accurate. And my I, I worked with my parents through the end of their lives. I managed their family business on the side and stuff. And they were very unhappy with me, but never unkind. And I, I went to therapy And the first therapist I saw said, you need to come out of the closet. And I didn't really mesh with him. So I did. I I resigned from the church, came out of the closet. And then I found the therapist I see every week now. And just kind of working through, you know, how I, where I find community, where I, what I think about myself, what's my place in the world. Um, Yeah, that's kind of what I've done. But boy, it's been decades in in the making for me.
1: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, Brandy, how about you?
7: Um, I don't think I have one big major thing. Mine was kind of uh, just slowly coming out process from the church. Um, I started going inactive several years ago around just um, the LGBTQ issues with friends and different things, and but it wasn't until, and I think a lot of people can probably relate to this, it wasn't until COVID when most of us were kind of like stuck at home alone and it was kind of like I was given permission not to have to do a lot of stuff socially or try to make myself go to church activities or or, um, attend uh, church family events or whatever, but I just had a lot, a lot of time to myself to start developing um, different talents that I had um, put on the back burner, and just kind of um, researching different topics I'd always wanted on spirituality and and things like that. So it wasn't necessarily anything I did, but uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the COVID thing was a, a huge thing for me.
1: And I, I really think what you said about um, taking time to develop talents that you had or things that you were interested in, I know uh, before we started really deconstructing the church, I spent a lot of time listening to podcasts by Jennifer Finlayson-Fyfe, Fife, um, who is an LDS sex, sex therapist, but she spends a lot of time talking about developing yourself and talking about um, find something you enjoy, and if you don't know of anything that you enjoy, just start trying things. Right, try them until you find something, and just start developing yourself that way. Um, and it's okay if you make mistakes. It's okay if you try something and you find that you don't like it. That's good to know. Then try something else. Um, and that was really important to me. And and I find it interesting that that was the precursor to deconstructing. Was this idea of like, oh. There's space for me, right? Like there's space for me. Um, Rebecca, go ahead.
0: Yeah, these are such great comments. I love this conversation. So for me, um like I said, trying to figure out who I really was, who my authentic self was because it was buried for so long, a huge step was just kind of reclaiming myself even on the outside. If I wasn't sure about the inside yet, the outside I could reclaim. I knew that wearing garments, and again, this is why we're all cliches, but we're not. It's very important, this step. Wearing garments, I had body dysmorphia. I had anxiety. I felt enclosed, contained. Taking those off a huge physical step to help me get more in touch with my internal self and my authentic self. So I'm not a cliche. I'm not just, oh, look, I took these off. It was a huge deal to dress like this, which is more me and my actual personality to have, to drink coffee. People are like, oh, you're such a cliche. No, I'm not. I'm doing adult things. I'm going to say I'm gonna swear in my if it fits into my conversation, if that's what I want to do. I'm not being a cliche. I'm not going off the rails. I'm exploring myself to try to understand who I am. And I hate it when we're, you know, when they say, Oh, look at her, she's doing that. No, no, no. I am learning who I really am and I'm becoming an adult um, in my 50s, ironically, because you're just you're kept in such an infantile state. Date um, the entire time by the high demand, high control. And so these things, they're huge as far as an outward manifestation of learning who you are internally and learning to belong to yourself. So to me, those were the biggest things, just being, and, and also the most problematic things for family and friends, right? You know, why are you saying, oh my God, now? Why are you saying that? It just feels natural to say, it feels more like me. You know, why are you wearing this now? Disturbing and problematic to others but part of my journey of figuring out who I am on the inside and the outside.
1: I I love that framing. I think that's really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Landon. I think you're muted.
8: Sorry, I thought I unmuted. Uh, Yeah, I was just sitting here looking at the picture on the slide here and it it occurred to me uh, that this term braving the wilderness, you know, what is what is wilderness? And, and it has a dual meaning, you know, in one sense, it's scary, it's lonely, it's wild, you're going to get lost, you're going to be, you know, eaten by a bear, you know, whatever. But on the other hand, it's beautiful, it's wild, it's unexplored, it's untamed. So there's, there's a dual thing here, you know, it is scary, it is, it is lonely, it is wild. But on the other hand, it's a whole new world to explore and a whole new, uh, a whole new thing that can be beautiful. You just got to get out there and find find out who you are.
1: I I love that framing of it so much. I was having this conversation with um, a black police officer that I work with. And he was telling me about his two young kids who are also Black and how he's really concerned for them because he had such a hard upbringing as being a Black person in the community that he was raised in. And he he's worried that they won't have the resilience that they need to face the things that he faced when he grew up. and And I didn't have the opportunity to tell him this, but what I really wanted to tell him is just believe in your kids, believe in their ability to go out there in the wilderness and to face what is out there. And that doesn't mean they have to do it without support. It doesn't mean that there's not other people around, doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but there's really great things out in that wilderness, right? There's really cool experiences. And how do you know, how do you know what your limits are? How do you know what you can do? How do you have those adventures and grow without going through some of that wilderness? So thank you for sharing that. Uh, Jackie.
3: Yes, um, I just have to say, and I hope this doesn't sound all cliche or anything, but I lived and to some extent live under a giant uh, Mormon shadow. And I literally read my way um, through my uh, faith transition because I didn't know which end was up. I didn't know what happened to me. And so I just dug into psychology books, like I've read all of Brene Brown's books. I probably read this book a good five years ago, just trying to figure out what the heck happened to me. And so I would say reading was one of the best ways for me to find myself and to navigate through the wilderness. And I have to tell you guys, in all honesty, when I found this book club, wow, like I'll cry like I... I mean, I just ran around the house to my husband and said, I found friends. I found friends. I found my people. I found my people. And I'm so appreciative of the wide range of books we read, of pushing me, because the more I explore and I get out of my comfort
1: zones and the more I learn, the more I find myself. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Rebecca, I think you just found your best soundbite to advertise the book club. That was so sweet um let's see we have uh joetta did i say that correctly yes can you hear me
10: yes yeah i i wanted to say um i was married in the temple and a true blue till i was 40 and i've been out for about 23 years and um i wanted to for me the piece has been Hanging on to the things that I loved about being Mormon and also letting go of all the things that didn't work. And I feel like it's really important for me to really honor all the things that were great that it taught me. Being honest and hardworking and all of that and being able to also just relinquish all the things that I really couldn't live with anymore like the homophobia and and just the having to be one way i was one of those women who in church i was the one asking the questions and i'd be getting all this shamed like women don't ask questions like this, you know and so for me peace has come in hanging on to the things that i value and honor and that i like about me from my upbringing and letting go that for me is not always easy, but it's, it's what allows me to have peace.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that. I, for myself, I have a hard time being in that gray area um, because I still have a lot of anger towards the church. And so I don't want to give them credit for any of that. <laughs> like <laughs> I don't want to give you credit for any of the the good stuff that might be there. And, and that's I get it. It's probably the healthier place to be. I'm still working on it, but I, I love that you're able to be there and to see the goodness while still saying, uh, these are all the other things that 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 need to go away and that I can take on because this is a better place to be in. Um, Rhea, did I say that correctly? Yes, you did. Perfect.
11: Um, I'm new. Hi, everyone. Hi, welcome. We're so glad to have you. Um, yeah, my, oddly enough, my first foray into discovering myself and finding belonging, um, I read the Book of Mormon six times, six times by the time I was 18. And um, my first relationship was very, I was very young, my first marriage, and very abusive, And very traumatic to leave. And that entire process, I really, really had to, I had to find myself. And that was where my first shift towards leaving the church really started in a concrete way. Um, But I kept reading the Book of Mormon because I had that habit every night. I read the Book of Mormon and I was still doing that for several years after that and I remember three it took me another three years I recommitted to the church to try to make it work and then um my second partner and I ended up leaving the church together because she was trans but the way I left I was reading the book of Mormon every night and praying every night and I remember having such a strong experience that it was okay for me to leave and that that was a necessary part of my growth and my understanding of myself. And I've been up and down and all the ways round into different layers of not fitting in anywhere since then and full belonging in myself and the spiral of, of growth. And this reading this book was like really a great reminder of all the things I've learned in the past And I like overcoming a lot of my PTSD. I had a, you know, I really integrated huge chunks of myself just to survive and be okay and thrive again. And so the last few years, I've been in a space of healing, but I totally fell apart and I didn't understand why. And so it's been really fun having just reading this book again and being part here and I lost a lot of my community in that process but I'm with my current husband and I are out of the church together and our relationship is really amazing and so and it's being with him is someone I can belong with and he's probably the first person I've totally been able to belong with and so that's kind of
1: where I'm, I'm at Wow, what a journey! Thank you so much for sharing. I think the thing that stood out to me, and there's there's so many pieces about your journey that that <laughs> I'd love to hear more about. But um, you know, you said you hit that that one point when you were choosing to leave the church with your partner, and you prayed about it, and you got the answer that it was okay that this was part of your journey, and. I think little glimmers of light like that, that's like our true self trying to come out, right? Like that's like our inner being trying to help us in spite of everything that we're like putting on ourselves or that the church was putting on ourselves. It's like your little inner person saying, no, this is going to be good for you. This is okay. And it puts it within all the mythology that we had at the time and all of that, just trying to talk to you, right. And trying to come out and, that's, I just think that's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Um, Bob, so we'll take this one last one, and then we'll move to our, our next slide.
12: Hey, guys. How are you doing? Um, yeah, so for me, I mean, really enjoyed all the comments of what people have done for themselves, um, post-Mormonism or through the transition process. For me, you know, I, I think somebody mentioned books. Uh, a little earlier and this so in my I'm in my 40s now but it was in my mid-20s where some miraculous thing happened where it sort of all burned down around me and I think experiencing the dark night of the soul in a sense so early without even knowing what that was was pretty important to me so I, I like this quote a lot um, because this is what I figured out in my 20s and I tried to make it work for 20 years post figuring this out but can you guys hear me okay I'm yeah. muted right now. Okay. Sorry, sorry, buddy. On live. live. So it's this Japanese poet from the 17th century named Zen Master Basho, and he says, Do not seek to follow in the footsteps of the wise. Seek what they sought. Seek the meaning behind their footsteps and not upon the steps themselves. For in seeking the footsteps, you shall be glancing only upon the next footprint, and you're sure to stumble upon an unforeseen obstacle But in seeking the meaning behind their footsteps, you're sure to see a head comparable to looking up while walking, thus allowing you to easily maneuver around the hurdles on the path you walk. And then one last part. And if you walk like this long enough, you'll one day, to your surprise, find yourself among the wise. I I remember reading this at that same period of time. I I started going to the self-help book in my local library. I was newly married. I needed to grasp onto something. and, And what happened is, Um, Eastern religions is what did it. Um, I think trying to like challenge your own ego and figuring out what happened to me when I was a child versus what's wrong with me is like really the part that like burning up that part of you that likes to wear masks and sort of like plays roles. And being a church member was nothing but a role to me. I mean, it was, I was the nice guy in the church. That's what we're taught to do. Nice guys and good girls. And so it was really powerful just at that point in time to start this long journey of like trying to move through uh, falsehoods, which is the lie, the the great lie that uh, that somehow this is going to keep me safe throughout my life by, by wearing this mask. So anyway, I just want to share that. Uh, Seek after what they sought, not just the men or people or women themselves from the past. It's like, how do I find what they were looking for, which I think is just connection and authenticity is what this connection to a divine or higher self or whatever. But anyway, I just want to share that. Thanks.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I I really appreciate that. And especially that sentiment of not just following other people, but, but really finding your own path and yeah, look to other people for wisdom because there's a lot of great wisdom out there. I think um, for me, Through the faith crisis, one of the greatest gifts I've been given is now being able to tell my kids, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. I I have some suggestions for you. I have some advice, but really, this is up to you. And I just think if I had been given that gift as a child, I would have been a completely different person. So at least I can give it to my kids now. All right. So moving on to our next slide, Um, this gets us to the problem with community, um, right? So we've talked about what it means to belong to ourselves. And that means we're kind of really holding to who we are rather than trying to be what other people want us to be. And that makes community a little bit challenging, right? Because in community, you have to have something that draws you together, whether it be that you're you have the same interests, or you have a similar personality, or things like that. So, how do you build community when you're belonging to yourself? So, Brene recommends that um, making connections and being part of a community provides a sense of security and overall well being. Overall well-being. So, community is good. We need community, that, that's really important. Um, she says, people are hard to hate close up, so move in. So, if you're having trouble finding community or making a connection with someone, Or there's, um, this almost sounds like it's a group of people, right? Move in, get to know them on a a human level or a one-to-one level. And it it makes it easier to appreciate who they are and to understand the nuances. Because often there's there's more that we have in common than it is that divides us. The next thing she says is speak truth to bullshit, but be civil. So do it civilly. Um, So this... I think there's probably some gray area here. Um, I think you have to pick and choose when you speak your truth. Um, You know, We've talked about some of the challenges that I have with my parents and um, I can't always speak truth to bullshit because I know that that is just going to build an immediate wall and I don't want that. So I pick and choose when it's the most important then I'll speak it. Um, Oftentimes I just gloss over and we move on because I don't want to build that wall. I'm trying to build the bridge right now. And then the last one, she says, hold hands with strangers and strong back, soft front, wild heart. Oh, sorry, that's supposed to be a heart. Not a here. Um, so again, just saying, you you have to make an effort, right? So get to know people. I think when she talked about um, hold hands with strangers, it was basically like talk to the person at the grocery store, talk to the person on the bus, like. Really get to know the people around you um, in your community or in your in your surroundings. Um, and you know, be strong. So have your strong back, know who you are, but talk to people, be soft with them, right? You don't have to come in like, you know, swords blazing. Um, be, be soft with them. Okay, so that takes us to our next poll question. Brene Brown encourages us to build community with a variety of groups and people. Based on your experience of being part of various communities, what commonalities seem to be most effective at bringing the community together? So we, I created a list of different commonalities that you could find in communities. We have locality, values, rituals, common enemy, um, it was just convenience, a shared purpose and interest. And so we've set up the poll. We're asking you to pick your top three, the commonalities that in, in your communities were most effective at bringing people together. All right, so a few more seconds, Bruce. Are we getting there?
8: You're muted, Bruce.
2: Five more seconds to come in to the poll, and I think we've probably everybody done, so here we go.
1: All right, so our top one is shared purpose. Our next one is locality, and the next one is values. I thought this was really interesting, and one was because um, there's been times in my life, and one specifically in college, where I was like, all of my friends are friends of convenience because they're just the people that I happen to live with, but I would never choose them, right? I was at BYU. I was like, I would never choose you as my friend. Um, But then also, you look at our good book club, what brings us together? we kind of have a common enemy. Um, and it kind of creates a pretty strong bond. So I thought, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, according to Brene, um, she, she asserts that sometimes our communities are defined by a thing that we all believe in or share. There are also times when our communities are defined by a common enemy, a person, policy, or set of ideas that we stand against. In your experience, have shared values created as strong a bond to others as a common enemy has? How uh, has one made for more enduring relationships for you, and why? So, Bruce, let's start with you.
2: Yeah, this. I I have spent my life searching for community, the family, the family of choice, the friends of choice, because. While my family has never been unkind, they we don't know anything about each other. I describe us as polite acquaintances. So with my work, I have friends of 35 years with my work. I have a, a games group that we've been running for 35 years, a dinner group that's been going for 30. I've been organizing it for 10. So I have my 30, 35 year friends, but then I've been seeking out new community. And in my new community, two of the people here at the book club, Karen and Jeff, are part of my new community. Um, it's the Pasadena Village. Uh, the village movement started about 20 years ago in Boston of older people trying to figure out how to age well together. The one in Pasadena here started about 10 years ago, and I describe it as a non-religious church. We provide rides to to doctor's appointments, we get together, we have a book group, we have... Uh, genealogy groups we have memoir writing groups we have two levels of walking group we have a hiking group and my friends Karen and Jeff here in the book club are part of my new community with the Pasadena Village so you know and I I'm always looking for community because I don't have it with my family my family's not unkind we're polite I I flew to Utah to go to the pride parade and I took my all my nieces and nephews and I visited my cousins who are mostly believing Mormons and we were very pleasant, but community is, is what I'm always looking for.
1: That's really interesting. So with your um, village, the village. um, So you have a shared interest, right? Figuring out how to age well together, age well. Um, But it almost makes me think you have shared values too, right? Because because you're doing hiking you're reading books things like that together that there must be some shared values there too
2: we're we tend to be more politically liberal um a lot of the people with um the pasadena village and it's very local altadena pasadena south pasadena and um little edges of the communities around there and you know Having local people I run into it in the grocery store and stuff. So, yeah, there's there's shared purpose, aging well together, shared interests and e- any person who has an interest like I help run an Apple support group at the village once a month and people bring their phones and Apple watches in and stuff. And um, um, yeah, it, it, it's an interesting group. Um, and or- so ask it, it's it the village movement started uh in boss in Beacon Hill and there's about 250 villages across the country a lot of them are in California there's three or four around Los Angeles some of them are religious there's one uh with a a Jewish synagogue ours is very non-secular though the seed money was uh donated my understanding is by the Episcopal church here in Pasadena. Hmm.
1: I was going to say maybe you actually have a shared enemy the enemy of age.
2: (laughs) No that's very true because we have a number of funerals at the village regularly because people age and stuff but you know it's a very nice community. Uh, Yeah a secular ward and no they do not ask if you masturbate.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh Landon, how about you?
8: Yeah. I I was just gonna say uh we went to went to Pride, was it last weekend? Was it that? Yeah. Just last weekend. Uh and you know, I am not gay. Uh it's probably not my community, despite, you know, how good Bruce looked. Uh, I'm not attracted to men, <laughs> but uh <laughs> it was very, it, it was very uh I met some really neat people. there. really fun to see the 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 different community there. And, uh, you know, that's something I've never done before. And I decided I was, I was going to put that on my Facebook page uh, and just put out there that I was at the pride parade and, uh, you know, everyone be damned. I, I didn't care, you know? So I, I posted that and, uh, I got, You know, a lot of people liking it mainly from the book club here. Uh, and I noticed I I have six brothers and sisters and my mom and 45 nephews and nieces and nobody from my family except my daughter was the only one who, uh, who liked it. Um, so it, it kind of just told me, you know, Hey, my community is whoever I make my community and, uh, you can find community and it doesn't matter that I'm not gay. I had a great time with Bruce. Uh, it, you know, there's a lot more to life than that. You know, you can reach out to different groups and, and you can have different philosophies, see different, see the world in different lights. And it can be enlightening rather than a uh, dark you know, you, it just opens you up to a whole new, whole new set of values and a whole new set of, uh, beliefs. So, uh, I thought it was great that I I got to do that, and it, it saddened me that you know the community that I used to belong to kind of re- rejects that that I participate in a new community.
1: Yeah, I I think we all feel that loss, I and mean, that's something that we'll talk about uh, in a couple more questions. Um, because we all end up losing people, we all end up having to kind of shift shift our community. Um, And in some ways, I think that's really valuable because we end up finding people who better align with what's true to us. Right. So when you were at this pride parade, you were with people who also really value diversity and value people as individuals, which maybe you don't find within your family. Um, But it's hard.
13: Uh, Laura, how about you? Um, I was just going to say, I was thinking about ritual a lot. This isn't exactly the answer to your question, but I'm going to get there. Um, but that's one of the things that I selected and maybe I need a better definition definition of ritual because maybe this is just kind of like a shared interest thing, but I was thinking about the various communities that I'm in. Like there are certain things we do when we get together, right? Like we like my soccer team, we practice, we play soccer, right? Like th- those are our rituals in that sense, right? Or like even this book club, like we read books, then we get together and talk about them. That feels like a ritual. Um, certain friends is like maybe a dinner group. Like I, th- I think those things that we we do um, that provide kind of a setting for us to connect, I think that those kind of count as rituals. And so when you find rituals with people that it is kind of a shared interest thing, but it also becomes a ritual. I was just thinking about that a lot. I'm thinking
1: of. I'm sorry. Did you get muted? We lost you. Oh, you're back. Okay, so we lost you. You said we lost you at the end of shared rituals, and then you said and, and you sounded like you were going to another thought.
13: Oh, shoot. I don't know exactly which, which the shared rituals. Um, I guess I was just going to say, I was thinking about how in, in the church there's a lot that are just built in and some, I think there's a beauty in some of that. And so sometimes yeah. now I try to think of like, what rituals can I create, you know, within my community of my family or with my community of my friends? Um, I do think that there are a lot of, there's a lot of crossover between shared interests and rituals, but I did want to highlight that, that, that is like an important thing Think for us as individuals at a community. Um, I was also going to share, you know, in actual answer to your question, you know, have shared values created as strong a bond to others as community enemy or common enemy has. And I think that those have a lot of crossover too, or at least correlation, right? But I've also found that like, when values win, like if we always go back to values, that's going to be like one of our strongest ways to just be an authentic person as well as to bond. Um, a common, common enemy can give you that moment where you can go, Oh, me too, too, or maybe we share some trauma about that. Or, um, it's nice to have somebody around that like gets it. But then like, I think values are the longer term thing that wins out. So for me, ideally, like whether there's like people within the church or people without it, outside of the church or whoever, as long as we share the same, like values, when it comes down to it, then I feel like I can be really connected and bonded to them and form a community with them. So there you go. I really appreciate
1: um, that you made that connection that uh, shared values also connect with common enemy or have a correlation with that. Because oftentimes when we have a common enemy, it's surrounded by shared values. Um, So you can identify that enemy, but you could also probably identify a string of values, which is why that is a common enemy. And um, I, I just think that's really insightful because I look at my common enemies with you know, some of my friends or even you know, if we were to take the Good Book Club, um, we have a common, common enemy, but we also have these shared values because of that common enemy and the, the, the process we've all been through. And so we also have this really long list of shared values. And that's probably what holds us together more than just the common enemy, because if we didn't share a good list of values we wouldn't want to spend this time together it just wouldn't be fulfilling okay we're going to take brandy and then jackie and we're going to move on to the next slide so brandy go ahead
7: um i was just going to say i think when i was in the church when we were in the church a lot of us might have thought that we were part of a community because of shared values but really when you were talking about how close they are with enemy i think in a lot of ways i'm finding out a little more that It was maybe also because we had a common enemy and I'm finding that out more now that I'm on the outside and I'm becoming one of those enemies that um, I used to have in common with other people. And so I think it is okay to have community based on common enemies, but I think that um, you need to start working on other things besides that, because there may come a time when the enemy doesn't exist anymore And if you want to keep the community, um, you need to kind of base it on other things as well. Um, I think of a girl, I work in my office, her and I are literally the only um, liberal people in the office. So, you know, around 2015, 2016, we discovered this when we discovered we had a common enemy. I don't think I need to really explain who, but over the years, we've really, really bonded over that. But we've also used it as a jumping board to find other things that we have in common. So now we almost almost never bond over that common enemy <laughs> as much as we used to. We now have a lot of other more values and and things. Um, so she's but she's a work friend. i'm I'm still looking for um community outside of that, you know. In fact, I, a lot of times I feel like, you know, I'm just a girl standing here in front of a world looking for a community. I've been lurking in this post-Mormon thing over a year now, um, online, watching various podcasts and things, um, mostly anonymously, just because of family complications and me still not being quite brave enough to face that, but I've tried to, you know, join live, podcasts, tried to join in talking is so hard. And it's extreme, even harder when you are, you know, you're not your face isn't out there. And so that is why a couple of weeks ago, I made myself attend an in-person event. And that was terrifying, because I felt like I was walking into an already structured community, where I feel felt like I was still on the outside. And it was um, really hard. So I had to force myself to talk. And I'm kind of, I feel like I'm forcing myself in on this community not too, because I've commented so much. Um, so I feel like in a lot of ways I'm trying too hard, but it's just hard. That's all I'm going to say. That's all.
1: <laughs> I, th- I, I think community can be really challenging. And um, you know, that's one of the reasons why we joined the book club because we were looking for community because it was so hard to leave and lose the community that we had. And um, Brandy, I don't know if you're comfortable sharing, but um, if you're comfortable sharing kind of the location that they're, you're in, there may be someone in the book club who's close by to you, who would be more than happy to meet up for coffee or breakfast or or whatever. Um, if that's something you're comfortable sharing, I think um, we we would welcome that.
7: Um, I'm, yeah, I'm comfortable. I'm just, I'm in Logan, Utah. In fact, when I went to the in-person event a couple of weeks ago, I went with someone local from here who we had never met in person um, until that day. We, we kind of knew about each other tangentially, but we kind of um, connected online and decided we were both going to be brave that day and go down together. So um, I know that there are a lot of things going on farther down South than me. Um, Just not a whole lot going up here in the, Rosen tundra of the north <laughs> yeah Logan
1: Logan's not kind uh, when it comes to weather but for any of you who are close to Logan if you'd be interested in meeting up feel free to throw it in the chat or I don't I guess you could send a private message in the chat um, unfortunately I'm in California so it makes it a little bit more challenging but um, Brandy just keep keep putting yourself out there there's a good community out here and a lot of people who who are willing to connect and want to connect and and um, and, and I, I think just, just keep working at it. I think it'll come together. Um, all right, Jackie.
3: Gosh, just really quick. Um, the common enemy, is it this book that says refuse to be sorted? Oh, I don't, um, I don't recognize a Renee Brown tactic that says, you know, stay away from dualism and us versus them. Mm. Yeah. And so that's been one of my goals. Since moving forward, is I I I hate the dualism of the politics. The church always had to have a common enemy. You know, when we grew up, it was the Catholic Church, surprisingly. You know, that was the great Nabonwell Church and a Marvelous Work and a Wonder and Bruce McConkie. And so that is a real put off for me, the common enemy, but I think it's really true and it's in there and we all get sucked into it. So I've always liked to take Renee Brown's advice of refuse to be sorted because most things are pretty darn complicated and they're very nuanced and there's a hundred shades of gray. And so that was one thing I'm really, really sensitive to now in the church is how much they need a common enemy. The church really needs an enemy. And it's a very, it's a sign of a very immature church. And that goes back to, um, Faith After Doubt by Brian McLaren. He kind of goes through a faith crisis thing in churches on those levels.
1: I think that's actually a really good point. And and I think you're right. I think that is in this book. And then she also says, um, people are hard to hate close up, move in. Um, And I think that plays to that as well. Um, Rather than looking at, you know, these common enemies, like really get to know people, really, really get to know their humanness and their nuances. All right, so... Next piece, we have um, just some advice on seeking connections with those who hold different opinions. Um, So this, again, hits kind of close to home to me because I, um, you know, my family now has a lot of different opinions, and in our country right now, we have a lot of different polarizing opinions. Um, So this this was some advice that she had. One, uh, approach disagreements with curiosity. So rather than trying to get your point across, uh, really look at trying to understand why they've come to this opinion and just being curious about their perspective. Uh, Two, be willing to have difficult conversations. Discomfort is part of growth. So, you know, really being willing to be in that discomfort while you're learning about why they are who they are and what makes them tick, even when you don't agree with their positions. Um the third one, focused on shared values or goals. Again, this goes back into um, you know my belief that they, we have more in common than we do not in common. And so really just trying to focus on that. And then four, recognize when the conversation becomes unproductive, not all relationships can be salvaged. Um, so is, there is that point for your own mental health or even to you know save the relationship um, you just may need to end the conversation and move on. All right. So poll question in the course of becoming a more nuanced Mormon or deconstructing my faith, my relationships with the following number of people either became more distant, more difficult, or were lost altogether. So a none, meaning you didn't lose any of your relationships B one to five, C, six to 10, D, 11 to 20, E, more than 20. Now, I'm sure you all kept a tally and you have this, you know, these are how many people I got out of my life when I left the church. I'm just kidding. Um, But we're just looking, you know, give an estimate. How many relationships became more distant, more difficult, or were lost altogether by either leaving the church or becoming a more nuanced Mormon? And we had a guest in our, um, when we were preparing for the book club today. So we'll see if we were right.
2: Okay, about 10 more seconds. Okay, in the poll and share the results.
1: All right. That was our guess. We guessed that the majority of you would say more than 20. And we actually talked about upping that number because we wondered if we said, well, more than 40, um, how how people would rate that. Um, I, I feel like most of my relationships were affected. Most of the relationships that I had before um, became more distant, more difficult, or were lost altogether. And it looks like most of you felt the same. We have a few that said none. And um kudos to you we, we we probably could learn some stuff from you um because that that's that's really something to be able to hold those relationships together throughout that all right next poll question since becoming a more nuanced mormon or deconstructing my faith i have found new relationships to replace those that either became more distant more difficult or were lost altogether so this is just to see like did, have you found replacement relationships where are you now so if, if you found new relationships, you strongly agree, or you found some, you somewhat agree, or you're in the middle where you're like, I, I'm, I'm stuck, um, or you haven't found new relationships, that's a somewhat disagree, or you really have no one, that's a fully disagree. And Landon, you have a question.
8: Trying trying to unmute. Un- un- yeah, you you had said that people are hard to hate close up. Um, or I, I guess Brene said that, but uh, you know, that I, I think we're seeing that in the church right now, uh, especially with uh, LGBTQ. Uh a lot of people, you know, the people in the ward know these kids. Uh, you know, a lot of them are young people that are that are coming out. And people in the wards see them and and love them and and respect them and want the best for them. And so I think you see kind of a revolt at the at the ward level to the church levels, you know, the church's response to that. And, you know, I wonder how many other of these, you know, marginalized groups could be affected and how it could make a, a big change in the church if, if the church would just allow people to get close up uh, in that. And I think it's tragic that the church requires you to have a temple recommend in order to work uh, there. Because just think if the church office building had some LGBTQ youth working there, uh, would that change the minds of some of the QA, Q16 if they worked on a daily basis with these kids and said, wow, these are really good kids or uh, you know some of the other uh, uh, marginalized groups that we see. I think proximity is the answer, and and I think that it's really dangerous when you require a uh, a vetting process so that only people like you are surrounding you, uh, because nothing will change. And I think that's what we're going to see at the top of the church is nothing will change because they surround themselves with that. But I think it's going to be a bottom a bottom up change because of that.
1: I agree with you. I think there's such value in proximity. My question for you is, and it looks like. Okay. So we're doing pretty well. We have, you know, people who are, are making some new relationships. So that's really good. Um, but my question for you is what about somebody like, uh, isn't it Bruce Christensen who has a gay son and his mind hasn't been changed. He hasn't become more nuanced or more sensitive to those issues. So how, so what about that? What do you do with that?
4: Is it Garrett Gong that you're talking about or.
1: Oh yeah, maybe it's gone, sorry. I Thank don't
2: you. I don't have any children.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's gone. Biologically
2: nothing has ever gone on in my life that could create a child. <laughs>
1: Wait, say that again? Yeah.
2: Biologically nothing has ever happened in my life that could create a child.
1: Oh. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think we're talking about Gong because he has acknowledged and his son is open, but there were situations where Gong would not post a picture of his son and his partner. You know, he has to yeah. distance himself when he may not personally feel that way. It's his son and his partner. So you do wonder about those pressures.
1: Yeah. Like, why hasn't he become more nuanced? Why hasn't he pushed back more when he's had to face this within his own family? It's his own child. How, how do you reconcile that as a parent?
2: Go ahead, Bruce. Oh, yeah. I follow his son on Instagram. And yeah, he's very gay. And <laughs>
8: Can't con- Bruce, you mean, you mean stalked, right?
2: <laughs> we know Bruce. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, his son sometimes posts pictures of them together. But yeah, I, I define it as the level of being church broke. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he was so in and now he's been, you know, elevated to the core of the 12 and there's financial incentives and their place in the community and their place in their family. I it I think it becomes a very hard thing. Uh, well, OK, Landon, you, you were, we were out at, at the restaurant purgatory or the bar the other night and you mentioned that Last time you were there, you saw um, Tom Christofferson and it looked yeah. like it was on a date. Yeah. You're going like, okay, that's a very interesting <laughs> situation. Um, you know, the poster child for you know, leaving your husband and, and stuff for the church, uh, it, it's very interesting. But people are, I think the definition is per- church broke. You're so invested, you can't change anything.
1: Yeah, that's, that's brutal. I feel like that it hits the heart of this whole conversation today, right? Because you're so church broke, you, I I guess I just say it also applies to this conversation. You're so church broke, you can't listen to yourself. And that has some really huge consequences internally. Um, You know, I know for us, we ended up doing stuff against our integrity, which um, I will always regret. I will, al- It will always be a sore spot within me because I acted against my integrity and I knew it was wrong, but I was so church broke, it was the only option I could see. And it, it still hurts. Um, okay, so our next discussion question Um, Brene Brown talks about the power of finding common ground with others as a starting point for building relationships. Can you think of a situation where you were able to connect with someone who held different beliefs or values? How did you find common ground and what impact did it have on the relationship? So has anyone successfully done this? Bruce, all right. He's the only one. The rest of us are still just sitting here trying to figure out like how to just be a person.
2: (laughs) Um, I have one living brother. He was a bishop um, and I took care of our parents. Um, I managed their finances. I managed their family business and I managed a lot of their physical care. Um, And I ended up, Rescuing my brother financially with our family assets, and you know, we had the shared goal. I felt very strongly about looking after my parents until they died. They were extremely unhappy with me. The um last three years of my mom's life, or yeah, three, three and a half years when she had mild dementia were wonderful because she forgot why she was so unhappy with me. And I was the primary person, you know, looking after them. But my brother and his wife lived uh, in the town she did. Uh, And we, yeah, we had a very shared purpose, you know, and we kind of avoided church stuff. You know, when I came out to my brother and his wife, I took him to lunch. This was 2016. And my brother offered me conversion therapy. And I just said, no, thanks. You know, we don't talk about that. I'm going to his 50th wedding anniversary party in a couple of weeks in Colorado and so you know we have shared interests and I'm just going you know and I've kind of decided I'm not pressing the church is not true thing with my family just if they want to ever ask me and I do have some family members you know confide in me that like oh you know I don't want to wear garments anymore and I don't believe this but I still believe in the gospel you know I'm going like okay well that's fine it, it, it's a little kind of nuanced dance you have to do because you can't change somebody else. So that's just.
1: I what. I love that idea of it being a nuanced dance you have to do. Um, I I had a friend that I was meeting with uh, a few months back, and and we were meeting. Uh, we were, it was basically networking. So she's not a close friend, uh, but we've known her for years, and um, we were just talking about life and kids and stuff like that. And I made a comment about Texas just saying, Texas makes me a little bit nervous. I don't think I'd really want to move there right now. And she just pounced on that and we ended up on the abortion issue. And the whole conversation just spiraled out of control. And after every statement she made, she would say, I just can't understand how anyone would want to kill a baby. And like, I kept trying to bring it back. And I was like, the interesting thing is when you look at both sides of this argument, both sides value life and we're trying to figure out what is that balance and and I just I I couldn't I couldn't connect with that I couldn't connect with her I couldn't bring it back it just turned into this really polarizing conversation and um and so now just like you said Bruce we do this what did you say nuanced dance right because we don't talk about that Um, We talk about other things. We can talk about our families. We can talk about school. um, And we just leave that issue out of it
2: with uh, when I'm around my nieces and nephews and my great nieces and nephews, because I'm one of the last two of my generation. I make sure when I'm around them, I'm always wearing a pride watch band. I have a whole bunch of them. I let the younger kids know, hey, I'm the fun gay uncle. I'm hoping that that time, and then one of my great nephews um, is a diver and he follows Tom Daly, who is a gay uh, diver from Great Britain, won gold and is married to Dustin Lance Black, the ex-Mormon who uh, won the Academy Award for writing the screenplay for Milk. And he's the one who did Under the Banner of Heaven. And this great nephew goes, yeah, you know i've started crocheting as a way to relax and stuff in the diving cuz that's what tom daly does and i'm going like okay here's a kid that's you know seeing a positive gay role model you know i don't need to to you know push beyond that the seeds have been planted
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting for me, because I guess in reading books like this, I would think you just have to stand and speak your truth. And that's how you find your community. Um, But it's almost like you have different levels of community, right? You have community where you can really belong. And then you have communities where it's just different levels of belonging. And you have to play that nuanced dance in order to keep those relationships that you value. Um, Rhea? hi um
11: I know like in my relationship with my parents especially my dad it's been an interesting journey and and with everybody and like most of my family are very devout Mormons and so and so like most of my and I live in Utah county so A lot of people I know and connect with are members of the church. And I think my primary focus in how I've been able to be able to be authentic with them and stay in a place of belonging was if part of why I one of the reasons I left the church is how they don't allow It's really hard to, you know, culturally, it's hard to be a different religion or have a different belief system. And so I focused on that idea. I want my beliefs and my way of living to be respected. And so if I can give that respect to myself and give that to them and their beliefs and their religion, then they're a safe person for me to be belong with and vice versa and focusing and that most of my identity isn't in my politics or my beliefs about abortion or any of those things. My primary identity is my everyday life and how I live my life and how I take care of the people around me and how I take care of myself that is my, that is who I am. And that's how I belong to myself. So that's how I belong to others and how others belong to me. And then it's, there's not really anything to be polarized about at that point.
1: I love how you just brought it back around to what we all have in common is greater than what we disagree about, right? Like our humanness, our our desire for companionship our love for children our love for humanity and just all these things you know the day-to-day like you said we we have that in common and that's that's what makes us us and so yeah we have different political views we have different you know societal views but really when you come down to it we have this humanness that that is us thank you Okay, so our last question, and then we're going to switch gears a little bit. Um, This one says, braving the wilderness encourages individuals to challenge societal expectations and stand in their truth. Can you share a time when you felt pressured to conform to societal norms or expectations? How did you navigate that situation? And what lessons did you learn about authenticity and belonging? I'm going to give you a minute to think about that. Oh, good. Landon, go ahead.
8: The temple. (laughs) (laughs) When I went through the temple and everyone, your whole family surrounding you and saying, Oh yes, this is, this is cool. And when I, when I went through and I went through pre, uh, when they had the, you slit your throat and you were disemboweling yourself and everything. And I was just like, what in the hell did I just go through and what did I agree to? But everyone around you is going, wasn't that wonderful? Oh, it's, you know, this is this is neat. This is a awesome experience. And my mind was saying no, no. But when everyone that you love is standing around you uh, telling you what a great experience it is, you kind of conform and say, well, if they're saying it, then I love these people and respect them. It, it must be okay, and I continued to go to the temple. It never was my favorite place to go, but, uh, you know, I did continue to go till, you know, I was 50 year well, probably 48 or so when I stopped going to the temple. But, you know, another 20, 28, 29 years I went, uh, even though I didn't feel comfortable at all with what I was, had, had promised in there.
1: Yeah. It makes me wonder if we were to tally up how many times each of us individually did something even though our whole internal system was telling us no, How what would that number be? You know, the people on this call. Because um, I, I I know I've experienced it. I've experienced it multiple times um, since nobody else has a hand raised. Uh, for me, the the most impactful time what I felt pressure to conform to societal norms was during Prop 8. And we were here in California. And we had felt it before because we'd been in Vermont when they did same-sex unions. And I know some of you know this story, but I think there are some of you on here that don't. Um, and there was such pressure to join the church's stand against Prop 8. Um, was it against? I can't remember. Anyway, to be, to be part of that uh, process of not allowing um, same-sex marriage in California or to define marriage between a man and a wife. And we questioned our leaders about it. We were like, please help us understand. We don't understand why we're doing this. These, these are people who are just trying to exist and trying to have a relationship And why do you have to get in the way? How does that affect you? And we got yelled at and we got called on the carpet and told that, Um, they worried for our eternal salvation and all kinds of stuff. And even in spite of that, um, I did my best to support the church and what they were doing. And I justified it by saying this, this sounds so crazy. I justified it by saying, I don't want to leave Christ alone on the cross again. Doesn't that sound crazy? That sounds insane. But I was like, okay, I'm going to pressure myself to do this because it's the church and I need to do what's right. And I've hated myself forever since then. It, it makes me so upset because it's, I didn't want to do it. Uh, Landon, go ahead.
8: Yeah, sorry. But when you start talking and brought up many more examples that I can think of um, November 15 policy, when that came out, it just sounded wrong to me. And I was going, "That that's not right. I know the articles of faith that, you know, man will be punished for his own sin and not for Adam's transgression. How is how is this right that children are being punished because of what their parents are doing? And I listened to the church and I said, okay, I all right, I'll buy into that. But it, it wasn't more than six months, seven months later when I started hearing stories of how it was affecting people's lives where I actually went into the Bishop and, and I'm kind of proud of this. Cause I went into the Bishop and I, I said, this is wrong. And, and I, I can't support it. And he defended it and defended it. And, uh, uh it must've been a little longer than that because three days after that, uh, him defending it, uh, they reversed it. And, uh, uh, you know, that that was really, told me something, you know, but boy, you know, it's it's all right to go stand up for what you believe. But another one I think of is blacks in the priesthood. How many people did I hear say, oh, we've been waiting for this. We knew it would come. We knew the day would come. And yet how many people said anything about it? And, you know, granted, I was nine or 10 whenever it happened. But but as I look back and I hear the story, some people say, oh, we knew that was wrong. And it's like, but did anyone do anything? And it, it's amazing as I look at this. All of the times I didn't stand up for what I morally believed in was when it was part of a church that <laughs> I didn't stand up for for what I morally should have. Uh, so it, it's kind of scary to think that uh, what they what they have on you there that you you're willing to listen and override your own your own feelings to tell you something's wrong to fit in with with what the church had told me.
1: And I think that's one of the greatest gifts of leading is that now you get to belong to yourself, right? You, you get to belong to yourself. You no longer have to go against your integrity and be part of something that you don't agree with. And that is such a gift. Bruce, go ahead.
2: Yeah. Just the basic thought I've had for several years now is the church convinces you that you're broken and then sells you the cure. And I was never broken and stuff. And so, you know, just that was my basic thought on that
5: topic.
1: Absolutely. All right, so switching gears a little bit. um, In the 163 page book, Braving the Wilderness, how many times does Brene Brown reference the research? So this is just kind of we're going to look at this from a little bit of a critical eye, um, just so that we can put this book uh, kind of where it's at. We can make sure that we have a proper understanding of the book. Um, You'll notice as you read the book, she repeatedly references the research or diving into the data. So I just want to take a look and say, how many times does she actually reference the research? So. Uh, Your options are none, more than 20, more than 40, more than 60, more than 80. What's your best guess of how many times she references the research? And don't you go searching right now if you have the PDF version. That's cheating. You have to do it based on your reading, what you think.
2: We'll do another 10 seconds.
13: Okay.
1: All right. So, uh, more than 20, more than 60 is the top answer, with more than 80 being the next answer. You guys are good. Good job. The answer is 63. 63 times she references the research. So I was really interested because I was like, oh, I was listening to it on audiobook. I've listened to it multiple times on audiobook. So then I went and bought my own hard copy. because so I was like, what, what research is she referencing? What, what's this, you know, I want to dig into the citations and see what what paper she's, she's referencing. Um, so that brings us to our next poll, In the 163-page book, Braving the Wilderness, how many peer-reviewed research papers are cited? I feel like we need Jeopardy music in the background.
2: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Another... Five or six seconds.
1: Okay, so we're going to end the poll. All right, so we have uh, the majority think about seven, uh, with the next answer being 10. And the answer is three. She cites two papers in chapter three and one in chapter six. Now, I have to admit, this was a little bit disappointing to me. I thought as she talked about some of these topics in here, I would be able to go back to research papers and really dive into what they learned about a sense of self and belonging to oneself and, and things like that. And it just wasn't there. In fact, if I remember correctly, these three research papers that are cited, they, they don't really have much to do with the core of the book. They're They're kind of ancillary. Okay, so next one, how many peer-reviewed research papers has Brene Brown written or contributed to? The options are one, three, seven, nine, or there is too much.
4: Is that a Princess Bride illusion?
2: (laughs) There is too much.
4: There is too much. Let me sum up. Okay, another 10
2: seconds. Okay, we're going to end.
1: All right. So let's see, the majority of you are guessing seven with the next being one. Um, Looks like some of you have done your homework. The answer is one. She has one paper and this is from her Ph.D. work. Um, it is shame resilience theory, a grounded theory study on women and shame. And this is actually, uh, some interesting work that really talks about how women look at shame and process shame and what, what that means for the female gender. Um, so I, I appreciate that work that she's done, but I was disappointed to find that, um, there are no, there's no other papers out there. And in fact, I dove into her website because so many times she talked about, I went, I dove into the research or I um, did this because a lot of the research, a lot of the, the work that she does is um, qualitative, not quantitative, right? So she talks about talking with focus groups and talking with and um, in, in this book, I remember specifically, she talked to high schoolers, right? So when she was talking about belonging versus fitting in, she was talking with a group of high schoolers. I was like, oh, I want to find out how many high schoolers did she talk to? What, what, what was the sample size? What questions did she ask? Um, what were their demographics? And I can't find that anywhere. She never gives us any data about these focus groups that she's talking to. And it's possible that some of some of this that she's referencing is from this paper in 2006. It's possible, maybe that's some of this work, and she's just pulling from that again. So when she says she dives into the data again, she's talking about this data that she gathered from 2006. But I don't know because she doesn't tell me that. Um, I can't find anything about the data that she's drawing on for this book, Daniel.
4: I was just gonna say this was one of the things that was hugely disappointing for me uh, about this book is like it, it it gives me vibes of like religion like you know people ask about what's the difference between science and religion well with science we make our conclusions and we give the evidence and you're welcome to look at, at, at the evidence and come to your own conclusion and, and, and attack my conclusions and everything here we have our conclusions and everything and she alleges to have evidence she has research and data but I where I was sometimes when I disagreed with her, I would open up the book and be like, okay, I want to see if maybe she's she's making a hasty conclusion or something. I'm gonna go look. But there were no data. There was nothing to I was like, she's like, this is the conclusion from the data. But then you can't look at the data, it just then it's not really science. You know, if if you don't have the data to look at and and, and analyze, it's not really science. So she's just philosophizing, really. But under the guise of it being science, which I found really troubling.
1: And, and I agree with that. And it, for me, I'm torn because a lot of the themes in this book really resonated with me. And I think you can tell that from our discussion today because belonging to myself is really hard to do and it's something that that I'm working on. So some of the ideas that she shared really resonate with me. But the fact that I can't go back and really look at the data or the research is frustrating. So to me, that's just, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a red flag, just so you know, like there's, I can't find a lot of data behind this book. Bruce.
2: Yeah. I was, you know, in, in preparing for, for this, you know, I saw the questions and stuff and I'm going <laughs> Bruce like. Bruce cheated. Yeah. I cheated. Yeah. I <laughs> created the poll questions and um, I'm just going like, okay, this is kind of like a, a light, feel-good book, very short, is the way it was presented for her audience. And I think we were a pretty good example of her audience because I really enjoyed listen, listening to it on my walks. And I'm going like, oh, yeah, this, you know, and I, I do have a better sense of, of what her points are. Um, if it were a really well-cited book, would anybody have read it? I just don't, I don't know. On social science research, I have
1: no idea. You know, but see, that was, so that's what I was saying. I was like, okay, because that's one of her goals. I did read that. One of her goals was that she wanted to be a scientist researcher that could actually write things that the regular person would read. Okay, I'm on board with that, but cite your book. So when you tell me that you went into the research, give me give me something where I can go look at that. It doesn't have to be in here. Like the book can be written like this, but like, give me a place where I can go or post it on your website or something. Okay, Daniel, and then we're going to move on to our next slide.
4: Yeah, my my big problem with that that is that she kept saying the research and the data. So she's using that as a sword. She's saying, look, believe me, because I have research and I have data. So when I make this conclusion, I have research and data. But then, we don't have the research or, or the data, so we just have to believe her. So, uh, so if she had just said, you know, this is what I, you know, these are my feelings, and, and a feel good book, right? Here's what I, here's my in my humble experience. Here's what I have. I'm totally fine with that. It's a feel good book. I mean, there's lots of books like that you read, and it's just somebody's wisdom, and that's great. But when somebody's like, hey, you should believe me because I have data then you should kind of cite the data, you know, should show us what the data are so that we could look at the data. Oh, you know, that's that's my opinion.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, so when I researched the main criticisms of this book, Braving the Wilderness, the main criticisms are one lack of empirical evidence and heavy focus on anecdotes. I think we've covered that one. Um, Number two, overemphasis on individual responsibility, disregarding the systemic obstacles to building community. And and this is just good information to have, um, just knowing that some of these problems you're not gonna be able to solve because they're, they're bigger than you, right? So you can't take responsibility for all the problems or all the relationships that you can't fix or all the communities that you can't mend, right? that that's not on you. There are some problems that are just too big for individuals. Um, The next one, simplification of complex societal problems. Her advice may be insufficient when it comes to addressing racism, inequality, and discrimination. So when we talk about connecting with groups that are different from us, uh, who hold different values or different opinions, heard, it, it just may be insufficient. You know, there may just be some people that are so vastly different that it just, it's just too complex. It, it doesn't bridge that gap. So just, just know that it may work for our, you know, our individual small little spheres where we're trying to mend family relationships and things like that. But when it comes to these wider societal problems, um, that this may not be the panacea. Um, And then the last one, the emphasis on personal growth and individual actions may divert attention from the need for broader societal changes. So just don't lose sight, right? Don't lose sight of this, you know, this individual piece here, but we may also need to act in a bigger way to, to bring forth societal changes, right? We still have need for these big changes. We can't just be friends with everyone and say, it's okay, like, there's some big changes that that may need to happen that would make it better. So those are the four main criticisms that I found. Um, They resonated with me. Again, uh, her book really resonated with me too. So just just balance those two pieces out um, because it it may not be the full panacea, but it can be helpful in our individual lives. And that concludes our discussion. So for those of you who have more thoughts that you'd like to share Um, Or if you'd like to share, uh, if you found this book helpful, um, we'd welcome your thoughts. So Daniel, starting with you.
4: Um, (laughs) After we read it, I was thinking about it like, you know, it was like, what was the purpose of that book? And if I had to add a subtitle to this, Braving the Wilderness, the subtitle that I thought of was How to Be Your Best Brene Brown. You know what I'm saying? Because everything was like so specific to her and like at her point, like it was all about her, her, her. And you can glean some good stuff from that. But to to then extrapolate that and try to apply it to everyone, I would didn't find it super helpful. And I thought she was less than humble in that regard. She would be like, you know, this personal antidote. Here's my one personal conclusion that I feel this is the way it should be. And, and that was over and over and over and over. And I was like, she's telling us how to be the best Brene Brown we can be, but I'm not Brene Brown. So...
1: Yeah, and, and Daniel and I talked about this because there were definitely times in the book where I was like, oh, this works for her because she's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. So exactly the advice right. she just gave there doesn't apply to me. And and there, there were a couple of pieces like that for sure. Uh, Brandy.
7: Um, mine is more of a comment about Brene Brown in general and just observations I have about her. Um, there are things about her that I really, really love. And there are things about her that um, I don't love as much. But the thing I find most interesting about Brene Brown is she's someone that I see people inside and outside of the church look to for different kinds of wisdom. I see her quoted in both areas. And so I think that's why I've tended to try to study her a little bit more because um i just noticed that um, for sure, definitely all my old Mormon friends were gigantic Brene Brown fr- fans. And now when I watch different things like um, uh, Mormonism Live or different Bill Real things, he, talk, he talks about Brene Brown a lot. So it's just an interesting observation.
1: I've had that same experience and even brought up, um, we're having some justice, equity, diversity and inclusion discussions at work. Our consultants, like reference Renee Brown the other day. And, and luckily they referenced the shame work. So I kept my mouth shut. But if they were going any deeper, I was gonna <laughs> wait a minute. There's no research <laughs> backing that. Um Daniel, go ahead.
4: I was gonna bring up too, there was one point when I actually had to call bull crap on her too. Like she was talking about the one situation where she was at a seminar and she's giving this talk and there were there were people in the audience and she used the word jip and she was like and this person came up to me and she was like i am a she was like i've been a big fan of yours for years and i like all of your work and she was like but you are a horrible nasty racist and she just like laid into her for using the word jip and i was like i i don't know i'm going to call them bull crap on that situation i don't think anybody reacts that way especially somebody who's like I've, I've been a fan of yours for years and years and years. You use the word Jip. You're dead to me. You're dead to me. You're you're worse than you're worse than Hitler. I mean, the reaction was just it was unbelievable. I mean, I, I was like, I I think she is wildly embellishing that story. Do
2: you think it was a plane bursting into fire and making the emergency? <laughs> no, I I it I was that exact like kind it, of right? story.
4: I was like. There's no way that is not a normal human reaction to the word jip, right? If she got up there and she dropped the N word like, you know, 20 times, then I could see someone being pretty outraged with her. But, you know, this is somebody that understands or knows that she wasn't trying to be offensive and you you wouldn't lay into her like that. It's just not a normal human reaction.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I don't see any of their hands raised. So, um, Rebecca, I think we'll turn it back over to you.
0: There we go. Oh, my goodness. What an amazing discussion. Rochelle, yay. Everybody clap. You did such an amazing job of bringing out not only what's in the book, but then just some thoughts around the book and what it is and what its place is and how we interpret it and understand it. And I will say that in the post-Mormon world, everyone demands sources, right? Constantly. You can't mention something without everybody pouncing on you and saying, where did you find that? Give me the source. Give me the citation and i think that's from you know what we've experienced before in another scenario where things are just kind of said And you're just supposed to kind of accept it. So I understand that about all of us. And that's the way we were. But um, thank you, everybody, for reading the book and participating. We'll quickly um, talk about our next book. I think that's our next slide. Yes. Um, This is called The Woman They Could Not Silence. It's by Kate Moore. Um, The shocking story of a woman who dared to fight back. Our discussion leader is going to be Cindy Badger. She is in the process of moving from Japan. Uh, to Utah, and she assures me that she'll be ready to go next next month. So I hope so, because this is it's a little more of a lengthy book, but it's written um in the story more of a narrative uh, in the style of a, a narrative and a story. So it should be a, an interesting read for everybody. Just very briefly, it's about a woman um, pre Civil War, 1860-ish. Uh, she speaks her mind. She has opinions. She's a critically thinking woman, and so her husband does what any good husband does. He commits her to a. Um, mental institution back in the day, because you cannot have that happening, right? And I'll just read you this one little part from the blurb. Um, When she gets there to the Illinois State Hospital um, in Jacksonville, Illinois, just atrocious conditions. And um, the blurb says, there are many rational women in her ward who tell the same story that they've been committed, not because they need medical treatment, but to keep them in line conveniently labeled as crazy, um, so their voices are ignored. So no one is willing to fight for their freedom and for the freedom and the disenfranchised both by gender and the stigma of their supposed madness. They cannot possibly fight for themselves. But Elizabeth, um, she is about to discover that the merit of losing everything is that then you have nothing to lose, which I think is a very uh, interesting statement giving the situation that a lot of us find ourselves in losing everything means you no longer have anything to lose. So this is the story of this woman and how she continues to fight back and fight for all women or all people who have been disenfranchised and their voices are not heard. So this will be on Sunday, July 9th, 11 a.m. Mountain Time. And, Cindy will be leading the discussion. So, and please participate, you know, on our Facebook page and tell us what you're thinking as you're reading. Okay. Very quickly, we always go through at the end other media that we can point you guys to. Uh, We have the Good Media Club, which is a Facebook page where we kind of curate things that are coming out. Here's an interesting documentary. Here's a um, new podcast on Mormonism. Just anything we find that we think that you guys might be interested in checking out. We have the Good Book Club podcast. Uh, You can find that anywhere where podcasts are available. where you can listen to back episodes of the book club. We also have a YouTube channel where you can watch those episodes and you can search it by looking for The Good Book Club for Post-Mormons. If you just put in The Good Book Club, you're going to run into a lot of um, Christian, <laughs> Christian sites. We should have rethought the name maybe, but I like the name, so... Um, also Landon and I run a podcast called Mormon ish, where we delve into a lot of issues that we discuss here in book club and even interview. A lot of uh, book club members are, our, our guests. And that's kind of why we started it. Cause we had such amazing conversations and there are so many amazing people here in book club that we thought, let's just start a podcast where we can branch out and, and talk to people and about these topics. So you can find that anywhere audio or find us on YouTube also strangely i have to advertise this because the two things i know very well are mormonism and star trek so we have a very funny facebook page called trexmo (laughs) where we basically look at mormonism through the lens of star trek you don't even really have to understand star trek to understand our memes i think they're quite funny we're getting a lot of good feedback so um if you want to laugh uh you can find us on that facebook page trexmo
4: (laughs) my favorite star trek mormon meme is the one where um I think it's Voyager where they have like Harry Kim and um, the Vulcan. What was the name of the Vulcan on Voyager?
0: Oh, what's his name? God, Voyager. I'm less familiar with, but I did Um, watch it all. I can't remember now. Tuvok.
4: Tuvok. Yeah. Yeah, Sorry, on my geeky side. The the one where they're (laughs) like, are you two friends? And Kim says, yes. And Tuvok says, No where people put evangelicals and mormons on that, you know. Yeah, are you two exactly. friends? Mormons like, yeah, totally friends. Evangelicals, no. Yeah. We are that's not
0: exactly friends. it. There's so many human situations portrayed in this that you can make, you know, you anyway, check it out. It's extremely fun. If you zoomed in with us today and you're not a member of the Good Book Club and you would like to um if you're not so much on social media, you can just email me at thegoodbookclub@mail.com at and I'll send you the information and links that way. You can send us a Facebook request um, the Good Book Club. That's our logo right there. We do most of our interaction there. We put out links. We talk amongst ourselves about the book during the month. Um, We are also on Instagram. You can find us there and I can send you links and we're working on TikTok. We'll see. Like I said, I need to find a post-mormon teenager to help me (laughs) get the info out. So um, if you do happen to email me, I think that's our next slide that um, sometimes that goes to spam from mail. My response so check your spam and mark me as safe to respond to you. So that concludes our portion today. We'd like to thank everybody for uh, participating. And again, our presenter, Rochelle, and we'll end the recording now.